You're listening to the second Changemakers podcast, brought to you by the Thomson Reuters legal team in Australia and emerging markets. Changemakers is a global Thomson Reuters initiative that brings together industry leaders committed to improving diversity in the legal profession. And we want your commitment too. My name is Catherine Roberts, and I'm a global strategic client director with Thomson Reuters Legal. In this episode, we're exploring the issue of gender diversity from the perspective of in-house lawyers. Today, we'll be talking to two female changemakers. They are prominent women at Thomson Reuters, and they're joining us to bring their own in-house perspectives on women lawyers striving to achieve gender equality in the legal profession. Our first guest is Janine Kane. Janine is the Thomson Reuters Chief Counsel for Asia and Emerging Markets. Janine has practiced law across three continents over a period of 25 years. She initially qualified and practiced law in South Africa prior to moving to the UK, where she spent most of her time at Clifford Chance, specialising in IP. Janine joined Thomson Reuters in 2006 as legal counsel for Australia and New Zealand, and now she heads up the Thomson Reuters legal function for a region encompassing Asia-Pacific, Middle East, Russia and Africa. Welcome to the program, Janine. Thanks, Catherine. And also joining the program today is Tiralee Chilog, Head of In-House at Practical Law Australia. Tiralee joined Practical Law as a senior writer in 2017 from the in-house team at IBM, where she had a focus on technology contracting, cybersecurity and data protection laws. And she also managed a team of IBM lawyers across Australia, New Zealand and Asia Pacific. Tiralee has over 10 years commercial experience working within in-house legal teams for multinational, national corporate and also government entities. She's also worked as a solicitor in private practice, twice in fact. Thanks for joining the program, Tiralee. Thanks for having me, Catherine. All right, so let's kick off the program with a question for you, Tiralee. I was reading a New South Wales Law Society report that delved into what were the most common reasons for lawyers to move in-house. I found it really interesting that the leading reason for male lawyers to move in-house was that they were after more interesting or, or more varied work. On the other hand, female lawyers more commonly cited factors associated with work-life balance, including more scope for flexible working. So, Tirely, what was the reason that you moved in-house? Well, Catherine, my first move in-house actually happened around the time that I was first admitted, which is an atypical start, I think, for most law graduates. So at the time I'd been working at a firm for nearly two years. I'd spent nearly a year full-time in commercial litigation and I'd done some paralegal work at another in-house team. So I understood the key differences between in-house and private practice fairly early on. So moving in-house the first time was about being able to use my business degree and having an interest in technology and media that matched up with that company made it a very easy decision. I think by contrast, the second move was certainly also about, you know, being interested in the business and aligning my interests. But I was definitely really conscious about the fact that I wanted to have some work-life balance. I was interested in flexible work options and I wanted to forge my career, but also put myself in a position where I was in an environment where I could add future family responsibilities into the mix more easily. Okay. That's really interesting, Terry. So it shows you you kind of reflect both sides of that coin around wanting that flexible work, but also the, the fact that you wanted to use that business, business degree. And so over to you, Janine, what drew you really to in-house? It's interesting when I reflect back because I remember when studying my law degree at university that we used to agonise for hours about how we were going to manage to be, you know, have a family and also a career. And it was always at the back of my mind as I went through the early stages of my career. Definitely, you know, at the time that I joined Thomson Reuters, I had a young family and I, I wanted that flexibility. I'd put off having a family for a long time because I was worried that it would get in the way of my 
career progression. By the time I came to Australia, I, as I say, I had a young family and I just felt that now was the time to, to make that change. And I thought it was interesting to see that the latest stats show that women do dominate in-house roles in Australia and they make up to 70% of all the 14,000 or so corporate council roles currently in Australia. And that's compared with about 47% in law firms. So Janine, I know this mustn't have always been the case, and I, I'm sure you've, you've seen a lot of change over the years. What, what have you seen for women over the past 25 years for, for women lawyers? So I think I'd first think about my experience in private practice. When I joined a private practice for the first time in South Africa, all the partners were men. And the first, and in fact, the firm had been around for 80 years at that time. The first woman to be made up to a partner at that stage was during my time there. When I moved to the UK, the leader of our practice area was a woman who'd been made up as a partner in the late 80s and she had effectively made it her mission to be better than any man in the um, in the department she worked harder than anyone she was more driven and I remember we all kind of looked around at each other and thought that's not what we you know that's not what we want and I think that's probably one of the changes that I have seen is that there is more of a kind of work-life balance for women there's more of an acceptance of the fact that actually it's okay to want to work flexibly, have a family, not have to be better than all the men around you. So I'd say that's probably the main thing I've seen over the last 25 years. It's scary to think it's been that long. Yeah. And so Tirley, you know, you've had so much experience over quite a lot of legal settings. What about you in terms of your observations around workplace cultures that you've seen or, or you've heard about that have helped or, or possibly hindered women in the law? It's uh, a good question. So I think as a profession, we really need to move away from valuing present So that concept that you're not at work unless you're physically seated at your desk and in front of a computer. So I've had friends who say that they can't go out for a coffee unless they leave a jacket over their chair and they put their screensaver set not to turn off. So it always looks like they're somewhere in the office. And I think most employers now see that offering different work situations empowers their employees to choose the best scenario for where they work their best. I've also heard it said that in-house lawyers can't work part-time and that lawyers who work part-time aren't really committed. And the truth is that there are some pieces of work and some deals and some clients um, who really require either a lot of FaceTime or hand-holding or continuity that doesn't necessarily work with being available every day. But there is so much work that happens in an in-house team that it can really happen part-time or in job share type arrangements. And I think the key is to have supportive management who will let their lawyers give those arrangements a try. And Janine, what do you think about part-time work and, and in-house? Well, for most of my career, Thomson Reuters, I have actually worked part-time. It's only very recently that I've elected to go full-time, but with some degree of, of flexibility in there. So I, I really don't think that needing to be in the office full-time is is the answer. I think it's more about what you do during that time. And it's always been a point of frustration for me that when I look around, people who work full-time often take long lunches. There's probably less golf being played these days, but definitely an element of people doing other things during their working day, but kind of they're seen around at points throughout the day. Look, I think we've all heard this many times before, but I think when you work part-time, you're working to an internal deadline, if you like. And so I think we tend to be a lot more productive. There's very little slack in the day. And so I actually think it's all about what you do rather than how you do it or when you're doing it. I think that's really the answer. Janine, it's always interesting to see the dynamic between law firms and their in-house legal clients. I'm wondering, as Thomson Reuters Legal Counsel, have you 
ever opted to not work with a firm that didn't align with our diversity values? I don't think it's been a conscious thing not to choose a firm, but I've definitely been drawn to firms that support diversity. So one firm in particular comes to mind, has really made a point of creating uh, networks for women informally, but also chaired functions that have been about fostering a recognition of women and their achievements. So for example, one firm regularly holds roundtables for women on interesting topics. For example, a few years ago, Elizabeth Broderick was invited to chair a meeting and to explain what she'd done to foster a culture of encouraging, promoting women in the workplace. Another one more recently was Women in Finance. They they organised an event around showcasing women who'd achieved things in the finance sector, which is another area where I think women have struggled to gain traction. So that definitely has been appealing. Also, Things like, you know, focus on pro bono has had appeal. So, yes, I'd say it's not just been about the the quality of the work or the brand of the firm, but also what they do to contribute to broader society and and, and to fostering of women. And and just seeing as well um, how partners within the firm, women partners have been accepted as well as flexible working. So, again, firms that I've worked with closely, a number of the women who are partners are on flexible working arrangements. And I think subconsciously it's appealed to me that that's acceptable in their workplace too. I like that. You're, you're attracted really to the firms that align with, yeah. with our values and the way we work. So I guess my follow-up question to that is then, what's your idea of the perfect law firm to work with in your role? Well, you know, stepping away from the whole thing about diversity, uh, it's very important to me that a firm is commercial and pragmatic, but also I guess it's being culturally aligned, I, th- I think is, is an important part of it. So can I actually relate to the people that I work with? Do they have the same values as Thomson Reuters? Do they evidence those values. I think it's all part of it, definitely. And so Tirali, in terms of your experience, have you seen any in-house or corporate initiatives that have really stood out to you as being especially successful at building an inclusive workplace? I have. I think it's critical to view inclusive workplaces holistically, which is to say for men and for women. So promoting diversity and inclusion is good for all of us, men and women alike. And we have to acknowledge that not every working woman is a mother and every man is not devoid of family responsibilities. So, you know, we're all a rainbow of stories and families and obligations outside of work. And as we see more colleagues who are starting to care for elderly parents or have partners or friends who are ill or perhaps care for a disability, it becomes really sort of clear that it's just not a question of flexibility for working mothers. And I think we focus on that and working mothers obviously highlight that um, that we need to have flexible work. But I think inclusive workplaces need to cater for much broader needs amongst their staff. One of the best ideas that I've heard recently was a colleague who shared that her employer stipulates core hours from 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. where all staff need to be available. So either in the office or remotely. And then outside of those hours, the lawyers are actually able to make up their daily hours quota across the day or the evening as best suits them. And that means means, you know, that lawyers who previously had to work part-time in order to juggle commitments can now manage their workload um, much better across the week. And certainly full-time employees gain flexibility in having a morning off for a child's school assembly or an afternoon off to enjoy a hobby if that's what they'd like to do. Janine? Um, I think there's another thing that also is important to take into account. I understand that law firms are often driven by the number of hours because, A lot of firms still charge purely on the basis of hours worked, but 
I think we also need to look, and I've taken this into account in the way that I manage my team, it's more about the output than the amount of time spent. So I've always said to people who work for me, um, it's not a case of your needing to be somewhere between particular hours, unless obviously there's a commitment to something, a meeting or whatever. But it's more about what are you actually producing? And if I feel that the output is the right quality of output, I actually don't care if someone is in the office from nine till five. To me, it's, it's it's more about what they're actually producing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I love that idea, Tiraly, around uh, the hours and the core hours. I think it, it does encourage employees to bring their entire selves to work, which is what we aim to do. So Janine, now let's talk about you and your demands as a client. We know that law firm lawyers sometimes have to work around the clock, honestly, to serve their, their in-house clients. How do you strike the right balance between supporting inclusion and gender diversity with your demands as a client? I actually get quite annoyed when I receive emails from junior lawyers at 11 o'clock at night. And I have on occasion said, look, this really, it's not required here. I have talked about timeframes for delivery of work and making sure that people understand that actually we don't need to put people to the pump on something when it's not required. Obviously, that's not consistently the case. I mean, one thing that has always been at the back of my mind is when I was at a large law firm in the UK, we were working on a deal. We worked right through the night and it was a Friday night, 11 p.m., a heavily pregnant lawyer from the corporate department came to deliver some documents. And I, I just thought this is absolutely insane. So I really do think... It, it should be a conscious thing on the minds of all managers, whether in a law firm or in an in-house environment, to really think about what we expect of our people. Because I think, honestly, a lot of the time that it's an artificial kind of urgency that is created, there are very few occasions when one needs to actually be working to, to that level of intensity. Uh, I mean, look, certainly in the world that I work in, I mean, it tends to be more the um, uh, the M&A or the uh, odd litigation or, or regulatory thing where, where it's a little bit more difficult. But I think absolutely, I'm, I'm very strong in expressing an opinion about this not being the sort of thing I want to see. And you have, in your experience, worked with uh, part-time partners at, at a- law firms, for example? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think we're all, you know, we all tend to be pretty flexible around, look, so the the working from home thing, I think what we all do, I've noticed is we will take calls from home on occasion, but at least we have the ability to not have to be in the office all the time. So yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, often we'll speak to a partner at a law firm from home, they'll be at home, you know, or in between going to pick up kids from school or whatever it is. So definitely, yeah, definitely. I also really love um, when the emails come in and, you know, Janine, like you say, they come in at, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. And I love when they have that footer on them that says, um, <laughs> you know, I'm sending this at a time that suits me. Uh, and it may not be a time, you know, that it suits you to read it. So feel free to respond at a time that suits you. I think that that's really progressive and acknowledging that people are working at different times and perhaps there's a really good reason why somebody is working that at that time for their particular for their particular lifestyle. Mm, I love that. That's great. I'm interested to know what organisations you've both been involved in that that foster, you know, female development in the law and and women's networks. Uh Tirly, what have you been involved in? At the moment, I'm involved with the in-house council women's network, which brings together, um, and I know Janine's involved in that as well, um, a a group of women lawyers who are all in-house. And it's really useful to bring those people together and talk very openly about some of the key issues that do affect women working in-house. 
I think, yeah, I was going to mention them as well. And I agree. I think one of the things I really like about that organization in particular is the notion of giving and asking. I think women are often not good at asking for help. And they have this, what, what can you offer? What can you what do you want to ask for, which which is a great way of starting a conversation and also actually learning about what other experiences and skills people have developed over time. The funny thing is, partially off the back of that, but also independently, I've kind of formed my own little informal networking gatherings of predominantly sole legal counsel. So it's quite common in the Australian in-house profession for lawyers to be working alone or in very small teams. And I think particularly when one's working for a multinational, that can be quite isolating. So over the years, I've just gathered around me a a group of uh, similarly situated in-house counsels. Some of us meet informally once a month, swap ideas, talk about, you know, what kind of challenges we're facing. So that's also been, you know, really useful. So I'd say those are probably the two main things that have a woman focus to them, if you like. And then obviously the organisations like the ACC that have also been useful over time. And I guess related to that is around mentoring and sponsorship of women and how crucial that is for our careers. Have you been the beneficiary of that sort of arrangement or or what have you done to to help women kind of up through through the organisation, Janine? So personally, I'd say my best mentor informally has, has not been a woman, it's been a man, but he's done a lot to bring up women through the ranks uh, with within our, our function. And I think that's really important. I think often, and I think you, you actually were responsible for uh, a function that we had on that particular topic about how so often women succeed when they have a man who supports them in the background. Personally, I've, I've mentored um, one of our younger lawyers who was similarly in a, a remote location just to kind of help her navigate her way through what is often a uniquely in-house experience of actually understanding how to be commercial, how to influence and bring on your internal stakeholders, which I think sometimes is a hard skill to learn. Absolutely. And Tiralee? So I've, I've mentored a number of young lawyers. Um, it's an area I'm quite passionate about, but I have also been the beneficiary of two amazing female uh, mentors who have the same, as you've said, Janine, sort of guided me on some of the commercial aspects of, you know, how to navigate perhaps the politics of a particular situation. And, you know, in-house, I think that's really, really key. You know, in any in-house environment, you really need to understand that the business needs to trust you and trust your judgment. And it's important to have a mentor who can guide you through that and also a sponsor who will advocate for you and help make sure that you can progress your career. I'm a big believer in, in sponsorship and I think that is one of the single crucial ways that women can tr- can be developed in an organisation and I think mentoring is wonderful for that tactical advice but almost I think a peer can can help you with that tactical advice and, and a senior leader should be there really to sponsor you and, and be your advocate when you're not in the room. My next question is around uh, sexual harassment and, and toxic workplaces. There was an, a recent IBA report that was a global report that showed that Australia in particular has a, has a real problem in law firms when it comes to, to women being the victim of, of sexual harassment and bullying. I'm interested to hear from your perspectives around what you've seen and how you think that this could be changed and and the situation really developed to, to make sure that we are keeping our really great women in the law and that 
the issue is something that's tackled properly by the industry. Tirali, you first. So um, I know certainly I had a colleague who reported to me an instance where there was a partners meeting and there was only one female partner. The the team weekly meeting was set up for 7.30am first thing in the morning and this woman had a child that she had to care for and it was done deliberately so that she would ultimately either miss those meetings or they'd be able to reprimand her and, and certainly when she wasn't able to drop off to childcare on time and any of us who've done that run in the morning know what that's like. And I think those sorts of stories, you know, resonate with the younger women coming through the profession who just say we we won't put up with that. So do you think that wouldn't happen now? I don't think it can happen now. I think people are too vocal about it. I think that, you know, there are too many reasons why scheduling a meeting, you know, arbitrarily at 7.30 in the morning is completely outrageous and not allowing people to dial in or have any sort of flexible arrangements as to how they might attend. Um, and certainly technology has played a massive part in that, uh, but there's no good reason why that sort of behaviour should happen anymore. Mm, I agree. So what's the role then of visible leadership in this space? I think it's really important for leaders to model the right behaviours and to call bad behaviour out when it happens, because if they don't, it becomes an insidious part of the of the culture of a workplace and and you'll end up having, you know, truly toxic workplace. Absolutely. And Tirali? I think, you know, by contrast in private practice, you also run into that dilemma where you've got perhaps equity partners and, and salary partners. And, you know, if you have an equity partner who's engaging in that sort of behaviour, it becomes very difficult to go against that person. There's definitely a real requirement for leaders, like Janine said, to, to model the best behaviour and I think for other leaders to hold each person accountable. I agree. Okay, so we're almost about to wrap up and I wanted to end it with a final question for both of you. What career advice would you now give to your younger law graduate selves? Tirali, you first. Um, I always tell young lawyers to get involved with their local young lawyers committees um, and really start growing their legal networks with integrity early on. I always think it's really important to say yes to worthwhile opportunities if you can. Uh, Don't be afraid to ask questions. You should always back yourself and always make a positive change happen where you can. Janine? So I think women traditionally have sort of had this attitude of if I work really hard, I'll be appreciated and recognised and I'll go forward on that basis, which is slightly different from what I've seen. And look, it's a gross generalisation, but with men who I think are better traditionally at at playing that political game. And the reality is that in an organisation, a lot of your ability to progress through that organisation is dependent on the relationships that you build with key stakeholders. So I think looking back, I'd say be conscious of that aspect. If, if you're ambitious and you want to progress through your career, build those relationships with people who are able to, to help you in that respect. So play the political game. Janine and Tirali, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Changemakers podcast. Until next time. 